the copper who came a cropper chasing Ned Kelly and his sister. Why whiskey might just be the root of all evil. We dial it up for Australia's first telephone service. And we go ape over religious monkeys. I'm Michael Adams. I'm Mick Luby. This is the Wayback Week and we're about to flash way, way back to the third week of July, 1878. So here we are, way back in the third week of July, 1878. And in the northeast of Victoria and beyond... The Wanted posters are up for Ned and Dan Kelly. The Kelly gang, Ned and Dan Kelly. They're the, the very same ones, but they're not really in the gang yet. They're more just sort of larrikin members of what was called the Greeter Mob. So they're a, they're a duo rather than a group. They were the, yeah, they're more the um, troublemaking brothers and their mates. But at the moment, it's just the pair of them. Um, out, on, uh, out on the tear, basically. What sort of reward would you get? for handing these blokes in back then. At this point, it was £100. Hardly worth your trouble, really. No, well, it wasn't a huge amount because a lot really wasn't... The extent of what they were up to wasn't really known. And because communication, things didn't travel so far, word didn't get around that fast, it wasn't quite known the extent of, of what they were getting up to over the border with some horse thievery. And meanwhile, there were a few things going on in Europe this week. They've signed the Berlin Treaty, which is the milestone peace deal that redraws the Balkan region. So we welcome Romania and Serbia as independent states. Welcome to you both. Welcome. Um, Leo Tolstoy has just published a nice little page turner called Anna Karenina. Mm, nice little 800-page mm. page turner. That's right. That's right. But back to our bush ranges, back to Australia where this loomed pretty large, the Kelly brothers are on the run for their lead role in this marathon horse thieving racket. What they were doing was taking horses, stealing them, mm-hmm. and then they'd rebrand them and they used all sorts of ways to rebrand them. They'd use like charcoal or they'd um, ink or paint or whatever to change whatever the brand is on the, on the horse's flank, leave them in a holding paddock near um, the Murray for a while till things cooled off, and then they'd ride the horses into New South Wales, where they'd be auctioned off. Nice little earner. A nice little earner for these for these horse trading brothers and their mates. But the problem now, at this point, is a bunch of their mates, the Baumgartens, these, another pair of brothers, uh, were headed for jail. So the circle is sort of closing ah. in on, on the Kelly boys. I guess the problem is, as well, is by this stage, they're actually known and wanted. So once you've been identified as being up to no good your odds of continuing are reduced. That's right, yeah. And so their pictures are up, their names are getting out out there. And as of April, so a few months earlier, when Ned wounded a police officer... Ouchie. Mm, horse stealing isn't the only thing these larrikins are in trouble for. And this shot cop, Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick, so he, he blundered into the Kelly sites a few months earlier because... He had this sort of odd relationship with Ned. They were kind of mates. He used to watch over him in the local lockup in Benalla when Ned used to go on benders. And Fitzpatrick, who by most accounts is busier in the bedroom than he is in the police station, has also become very friendly with Ned's sister, Kate. Ah. Hmm. Beware. Beware, pants man, policeman. Yes, a lesson to you all. Uh... So he's not exactly your buy-the-book kind of copper, is Constable Fitzpatrick. Now, he's sensed that the Kelly boys have snuck back to the family shack in Greta, 
because their mum is about to give birth and the boys are about to get a half brother or sister. Mama Kelly must have really been going for it late in life because Ned was mm. in his late 20s by now. Yep, yep. He was right? early 20s. No, early, early 20s. 20s. Right. Early 20s. Yeah. So he was hanged at, at 25. Spoiler alert. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But he, um, Fitzpatrick, pretty much felt that he was in with the Kellys. He was friendly with them and he thought they trusted him and he seemed to think they, you know, it was mutual. So he thought he'd drop by crazily and just nab Ned and Dan and pocket the reward. That was apparently the plan. And in this sort of comedy of errors, Fitzpatrick turns up to the greeter Kelly shack, armed with a revolver and wearing a helmet, and he's promptly hit with a coal shovel by Mrs. Kelly. So his helmet wasn't much good. No, his helmet didn't do him much good. <laughs> and then he's shot in the wrist by Ned. Um, because he's pretty much walked in and said, I'm arresting your boys, Mrs. Kelly. And she said, no, you're not. Take that. And Ned said, you know, no, you're not. Bang. The copper promptly fainted. As you do. When I came round, as you do, yeah, fair was, enough. Was Mrs. He, Kelly like heavily pregnant at this point? I actually, I actually think Kelly, I think she might have given birth at that point. Yo. I think she had a bub. Fitzpatrick later said, when I came round, Ned said to me, I'm sorry that this happened. It will get me into trouble. Hmm. I'll get it pretty heavy. And he did. Prescient words from Ned there, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so now Ned and Dan are wanted for the attempted murder of a policeman. So they're actually wanted for that by this time in July 1878. Yes. So at this point, yeah, they're, they've been on the run because of the horse trading, but now it's ramped up. And uh, within three months, they'll be wanted for the actual murder of three policemen, not just the attempted murder of one. And that would be at the ambush and shootout at Stringy Bark Creek in October 1878. This is an interesting point in their development i guess because from here on in i could have said this is all getting way out of hand as mm. ned told fitzpatrick when he's lying there on his on the floor this is all getting a bit out of hand ned apparently offered him a bribe which fitzpatrick took and said all right i'll take the bribe i'll i'll be i'll go quietly and um i'll leave you to it ned could at that point have said we'll take the rap we shot the cop but you know he came into our house fair enough uh yes we've been stealing horses yes we don't want to go any further but were they all kind of hanging offenses anyway no they weren't they weren't at that point no he had he had a few you know he had a, he had a long record at that point but it was all relatively minor at this point but boy from here on in they, they pretty much raise the the terrorizing stakes they're taking hostages plundering banks in less than two years from here in june 1880 ned will be the only gang member left standing after the siege at glenrowan and before that year's out, he'll be hanged. Mm. So this really was a point in the movie where you always think, just walk away. Go and yes. live a quiet life. Yeah, this sort of pivotal bit where Fitzpatrick blunders in mm. and makes a mess of things. And that was the sort of feeling among other coppers too, apparently, of just this like, what the hell was he thinking? Go especially going there, he went on his own. Yeah. At a time when there was actually an edict put out a few weeks earlier by the by the head of police saying... Uh, just reminding you that you know there's we've got very um, we've got cutbacks. There's uh, just haven't got enough police out there. You, you blokes have to like stick together if you're heading out and about, especially in the bush. You can't go taking matters into your own hands, which Fitzpatrick certainly had a go at. He missed that memo, surely. 
Yeah, he really did. So what are the boys doing? They're wanted, they're on the run, they're in the bush. How are they entertaining themselves? Well, may you ask, Michael, how are they entertaining themselves? Well, this time of year, as everyone knows, is just right for harvesting mangle wurzels. <laughs> right? Do you make that up? It sounds like I made that up. It sounds like something out of wurzel grummage crossed with... Mrs. Mangle, was she in Neighbours? Yeah, Mrs. Mangle from Neighbours. Yeah, she was the nemesis of Madge, wasn't she? Right, right, right. That's a long time ago. I'd like to think she, this, maybe her naming was, it, it might hark back to the humble mangle wurzel, which is a cultivated root vegetable, a bit like a beetroot, only yeah. yellow. And wurzel is actually German for root. Right. It's also known as the root of scarcity or the mangold. And at the time, in fact, even earlier than this, there was some discussion about the naming of the mangle wurzel. It was all the rage in the 1800s. It was a very popular vegetable, usually given to cattle, but people ate it too. There was a great little letter about um, a bloke writing in in the Sydney Morning Herald asking why all this discussion about the naming of the mangle wurzel? Why can't we just stick to one thing or the other? And he goes on to say he's, he's happy with calling it the mangold. Mangold is, I think, probably catchier than mangle wurzel. Depending on what your first language is, of course. True. You could have a mangold rush as well. Yeah. Or some sort of wipe that you put on yourself. You know those wipes they sell in the dispensers in the public bathrooms for $2? Mm. Sustain erotic pleasure with mangold pheromone. <laughs> that puts a whole new slant on the headline here then. The culture of mangle wurzel. <laughs> where someone actually reminds readers that July is the best month for harvesting and storing this grand root in this colony. It's true, it may be harvested earlier, particularly in cold districts, but there is no advantage in so doing. On the contrary. And he goes on to talk about the harvesting of mangles. Someone else in Ballarat who writes in with the headline about mangles. And he says, this is Mr. W. Scott of Ballarat, at first glance, the heading of this article will seem to have very little interest for a great many of my fellow farmers and expressions will be dropped about, what about mangles? What can he say about mangles? <laughs> but anyone driving through this country must have seen the many failures from people attempting to grow without previously preparing the soil for this valuable route. So you're just going through the Victorian countryside in the late 1870s and all you're seeing left right and everywhere around you are the failed attempts to grow mangles exactly mangle apocalypse yep the landscape was mangled <laughs> he, he says if 20 years experience in this district of a practical and successful grower is of any value i freely give it that is it's no use trying to grow this crop successfully unless on land naturally drained hmm. so were the kelly boys actually trying to give up bush ranging and going into mangle farming is that the linkage here it's a romantic notion. They were sort of failed farmers, so they tried to get a parcel of land For given mangles? to them by the government. Mangles were on their list. Really? But they, they didn't really spend much time farming. As we've kind of suggested, they spent more of their time stealing horses. But this time around, it sounded like they genuinely were giving it a go. Ned said in the Geraldry letter, I came back to this shack in... It's actually at Bullock Creek, near Stringy Bark Creek, with the full intention of working a still to make whiskey, as it was the greatest means to obtain money. And it's assumed that when he said that, he meant money to fund his mother's legal case, because when she whacked Fitzpatrick, 
And when Ned tried to whack Fitzpatrick, she was hauled off to jail. So the poor woman with this bub was actually hauled away as the matriarch of the Kelly family. And Ned and Dan were on the run, but also thinking, we've got to help mum. So Ned was wrangling mangles so he could bootleg liquor. <laughs> yes. And not become a bush ranger. Well, I don't know about the not becoming a bush ranger thing. He says we had 20 acres of ground cleared for the purpose of growing mangle wurzels and barley for the purpose of distilling whiskey. And this was on the banks of the creek near the hut where Ned set up a still with a huge cast iron pot. And I do like that the pot wasn't made of copper because, <laughs> as we know, Ned hates coppers. <laughs> so had the mangle, did the mangle plan go well or not? Yeah, it, it went well. It worked because they got a hell of a lot of drunken target practice in while they were hiding out at this hut in the Wombat Ranges and wondering what to do next. They were suggest they were kind of at a bit of a loss as to what to do, where to go, because they had their mum in jail. They had plans to head off, but they couldn't go very far because I think, you know, the, the apron strings were still there. Oh, Irish mummers boys. That's right, that's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've just looked it up. Mangle Wurzels, you can buy 50 heirloom seeds that date back to the 18th century mm. for $1.30. Wow, see, that's a bargain. And it does actually say that you can eat the roots as well as the leaves, and the roots grow up to 18 kilograms, though they taste better when, they're, when they're, they're younger and smaller. Right. I did look up Ned Kelly to see if he was actually making the newspapers during this period where he was off wrangling mangles. <laughs> and I did find actually one reference to him it was from actually the second week of July 1878, but he had been reported in the Ovens and Murray Advertiser as encountering this teenage girl. She was riding through the bush about 12 miles from Mulwala near the Murray River when she encountered this guy and he said, come back or I will make you, at the same time as advancing towards her with a revolver presented. And then he decided to inspect her horse and he gave it a thorough looking over. He declared it had lampers, which is a condition of the mouth. He examined the legs, checked it all out, and then he said that he liked the horse, except it had some very striking markings. So I'm assuming that meant that it was too obvious to steal the horse. <laughs> yes, so right. he said to her she was lucky that she wasn't a man or a boy or he would have robbed her. And then he told her to, you know, get going, to get lost. As she rode off, she looked back over her shoulder. There he was pointing the gun at her and he shouted out, right away, say nothing or I'll blow your brains out. Mm. It was a pretty scary encounter. Mm. He was described as being six feet tall, rather stout, about 28, with brown hair cropped short, clean and well-shaved. Now, it mm. said he had two revolvers. The constables from Mulwala and Yarrawonga got after him and were at this point looking for him. And the newspaper report ends with... It is supposed that the offender is none other than the redoubtable Ned Kelly. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like Ned? It sounds like Ned. There's a few discrepancies. Uh, he wasn't 28. He was younger than that. And he wasn't really stout. And he wasn't clean shaven. Was he clean shaven? This is a couple of years before. No, he'd grown he the beard. He had the beard at that point. No, did he? Sure. So it wasn't Ned. He was, he was doing the hipster look pretty early on. It was fake Ned. Well, there were, there were a lot of these fake Ned reports at the time. There were a lot of, and it was taken advantage of. So a lot of crims were out there thinking, 
hang on, I can rob this bank, I can hold up this stagecoach and people will think it's Ned and he'll get the blame. And there, there's quite a few of those. There's a famous one at Lancefield um, out near Hanging Rock where there was a bank heist and for ages it was put down to the Kelly gang because it was two blokes with beards. They said they were the Kellys and they made off with a whole lot of money and they, they got away with it. It was not the Kelly boys. I see. But another reason for the, for the Kellys to feel victimised because they certainly felt that. Just harking back to something else you said that was happening this week and that was the publication of Anna Karenina by Count Leo Tolstoy. It had just been published as a book. Mm. But I was interested to find out that it had previously, like the work of Dickens, had been serialised over a period of years in a newspaper called The Russian Messenger. And um, I looked up to see, you know, if the American newspapers or the European newspapers were proclaiming, you know, the publication of what has gone on to become a classic. Oh, it's considered that one of the, well, the greatest novel of all time by, by many. But you'd have to wait a little while to read it in English from the sounds of things because the New York Daily Herald this week in 1878 was reviewing Count Leo Tolstoy's great work, The Cossack. Now, The Cossack ah. had been published 15 years earlier in 1863 in Russian and had waited 15 years to be translated. So, Anna Karenina, if you wanted to read it quick smart, you mm. probably would have been better off going and actually learning how to speak Russian because it was some time in the translation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, no one was rushing out. No one was rushing out. But I have to say that Count Leo Tolstoy could give Ned Kelly a run for his money in the beard stakes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was a hairy dude. He had he had like whiskers going in every direction. He was also a bit of a bit of an oddball while Ned was setting down his mangle wurzel thoughts in his Geraldry letter. Tolstoy was writing a lot as we know because his novels such as Anna Karenina and War and Peace are whopping doorstops. Mm. But he also wrote every single day about what he'd done and what he planned to do, what he hoped not to do also consumed a lot of his thoughts. So he was this veteran self-improver. He'd been inspired by Benjamin Franklin's 13 virtues. So he set down every day what he was going to do minute by minute pretty much. His goals were to get to bed by 10 and get up at 5 with no more than a two-hour nap each day, which is, you know, fairly sensible. Eat moderately and avoid sweet foods. But he also was determined to limit himself to just two brothel visits a month and to really be very, very uh, mindful, I guess, of how he would spend his time gambling and even listening to music. He set down strictures for himself. He called this his journal of daily occupations. Right. So it sounds like wow. he wrote as much about what he wanted to do. Trimming the eyebrows wasn't on the list of self-improvement. <laughs> All the time he saved thinking about how he was going to listen to music. He didn't have to worry about trimming his beard. But he also <laughs> had a cult grow up around him in the 1880s. So he retired to this country estate mm. and was surrounded by dozens of apostles. For his writings, presumably, yeah. No, I think his, his spiritual uh, beliefs. Oh, right. So he kind of preached this faith, which was a mixture of pacifism and Christian anarchism. 
and you had all of these dozens of these apostles who called themselves Tolstoyans who all gathered around him, moved onto his estate and uh, hung on his every word, established settlements all around Russia and around the world. Right. Yeah. One of the people who was influenced by this Tolstoyan philosophy was Mahatma Gandhi. Aha. Uh-huh. He wasn't just a beard who was good at the writing. No, no. But another long-winded beardy bloke like like Ned. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But a bit of a better writer. You'd, yeah, you'd have to have to assume Ned didn't actually write. It was his. It was his mate Joe Byrne. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The drilldry letter was all dictated. It was Ned ranting and Joe scrawling. Does that go? Does that also hold true for the letters he wrote to the newspapers? Yep. Tolstoy's wife actually did give him a tremendous amount of support in terms of helping him with drafts of War and Peace and proofreading and rewriting and all of that, mm. um, even though their marriage was absolutely abominable and he pretty much ignored her for years as he went off to become a, a guru. Well, that's a bit harsh, Michael. He kept his brothel visits to only two a month. This is true. This is mm. true, Mick. In religious news, I believe yeah. that uh, this week there was uh, movements afoot to try even harder to convert monkeys to Christianity. That, that's right, yeah. That's bananas. That, oh, very good, that is. Were people really trying to do this? They were going out on a limb. <laughs> they were monkey missionaries, is what the headline was saying this week, with the newspaper reporting that they were about to send more men out to convert the monkeys in South Africa. One of the missionaries there says if he could only live long enough with them, he could learn the language of the monkeys. So they hadn't learned the language of the monkeys, but they were still trying to convert them anyway. I love the idea that they're trying to convert them as though they already have some sort of religion. Yes, I know. All this assumption that, well, they could have, they could be Christian for all they know. For all they know, monkeys could be. Who knows? Did they ask them? So they're sending more men. So they yes. just, it wasn't, the problem wasn't that they couldn't speak monkey but the problem was they didn't have enough missionaries. Maybe that was it. Not enough people to take notes. There was a New York journalist at the time offering, if provided first with some basic language and a dictionary of, of apes, to find missionaries to start schools and churches for the elevation of our less developed cousins. <laughs> Man. Mm. Uh, that didn't work, I assume. No, well, no, it, it didn't work, but um, funnily enough, it does, of course, sound pretty far-fetched. But there was a primatologist, a really early primatologist out there around this time, and he was studying the language of chimps, and his name was Professor Richard Garner, American-born in 1848. He was convinced that the human language evolved from apes. We didn't just evolve from apes, the language itself did. And he even had one of Thomas Edison's early phonograph machines and used to go around zoos in America recording the chimps, the primates, and and then after that he headed off to Africa to study the animals in the wild. Well, the idea of animals having religion, it actually dates back to ancient times with Pliny the Elder, who believed that the elephant was a moon worshipper. He said, quote, The elephant is the largest of them all, and in intelligence approaches the nearest to man. It understands the language of its country, it obeys commands, and it remembers all the duties which it has been taught. It is sensible alike of the pleasures of love and glory, and to a degree that is rare among men even, possesses notions of honesty, prudence, and equity. It has a religious respect also for the stars, and a veneration for the sun and the moon. There you go. Mm. The thing is, is that... 
90 years after 1878, we had absolute proof positive that apes had religion with uh, the commandment, ape shall not kill ape. Ah. From Planet of the Apes and its sequels. They were all about Dr. Zayas, who he was the uh, defender of the faith and the minister of science. Right, yes, so he of said course. religion is science in those movies. And then he, he was using the, the, the scrolls to cover up the secrets of the evolution of the apes from, from man. So they may have been inspired by this Professor Garner because he had, a, he had his article, The Simian Tongue, where he argued that the lower primates have a rudimentary language and that language is the origin of human speech. And then from there, they found religion. Is that, mm. is that possible? And how does the praying mantis fit in? Ah, yeah. I wonder if he mentioned that. I, he doesn't say much. but um, What sort of prayers do you think the praying mantis is mm. saying? I think the male praying mantis would be, please don't let her bite my head off after we have sex. Yeah, I think that'd be about it. That'd be the main prayer, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it would be. Fair enough, too. <laughs> there was a report in 2016 from the New Scientist reporting that biologists working in Guinea in West Africa seem to have found a sacred tree used by chimps, perhaps for some sort of ritual. So they set up camera traps next to designated trees, which had scratch marks on them that intrigued them, and they watched the chimps placing stones in the hollows of the trees and bashing the trees with rocks, and they figured that the behaviour could be a means of communication, or it could be something deeper, something symbolic that they were doing. And one of the biologists wrote, maybe we found the first evidence of chimpanzees creating a kind of shrine. Mm. So of course, it's not, it's not proof that chimps believe in any kind of god, but it's more evidence that there's plenty going on there that we don't understand. A bit like religion itself, I guess you could say. And in another report from the uh, Max Planck Institute in Germany, they pretty much suggest that the missionaries were definitely wasting their time. Who'd have thought? Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but I like the scientists' reasoning. They concluded that monkeys are spiritual, but not religious. Is that what the guy from the Max Planck Institute said? Mm. Yeah, that's what they <laughs> came away with. Fair enough. Riffing off the idea that chimps have shrines, we should remember that our four-legged friends, the elephants, tend to bury dead creatures. So they bury each other once they've passed away, but they've also been known to bury rhinos, buffaloes, cows, calves, and even people. Wow, really? Uh, according to one scientist, they've also been known to bury their dead with large quantities of fruit, food, flowers, and other foliage, as though they are sending their loved ones off. And you know so what's nice is the fact that they're elephants, they'll always remember them. Very true. That's why they don't bother with headstones. No, they, they don't, don't need they to. They don't need them. No, they never forget. They never forget. And they don't forget that primate is another name for an archbishop. Ah, how does that work? Is there any relation to monkey? Not that I know of. I've always thought it was a bizarre thing to call the head of a church a primate. But mm. I, I guess it's from prime as in first. But then I've always thought rector was rather unfortunate. <laughs> Very true. Word of the week. Word of the week. All right. Yes. For 1878, a yes. word that was being thrown around this week, cumshaw. Hmm. Flung around with abandon. With abandon. People were ejaculating in all directions saying Very this good. word. Very good. C-U-M-S-H. A W. Pray tell, Mick, what is a cumshaw? Well, a cumshaw is a bribe or gratuity, and it comes from Chinese dialect, literally meaning grateful thanks. So a bit like bagsheesh, perhaps? Yes, very much like bagsheesh. It had nothing to do with rickshaw, which I thought at first maybe it did, 
but that's Japanese, not Chinese. Oh. And rickshaw comes from jin rikishaw, which means human power, apparently. Literally means human power. That makes that makes sense. Hmm. So Cumshaw, good name for an indie band. It would be a great name. Well, that's how it might make a comeback, but otherwise I can't see it happening. They reckon it came from British Navy personnel introducing it to English from hearing it in Chinese ports during the first opium war of 1839. Kam Xia is from the dialect of Xiamen in southeast China. And you might remember from previous episodes, Michael, our friend Dr. Ping. Mm-hmm. That's where his dad came from. That's right. And it was Dr. Ping who gave us the name Farlap from that same dialect. So he would have definitely known the Kumshaw. Uh, he would have, yep. It's thought that the sailors heard beggars saying it and they mistook it as a request for money rather than thank you. And from there, American sailors gave it this extra slant and it became another word for obtaining something by dodgy means. And then beyond naval circles, come sure quickly came to mean either a harmless gratuity or tip right up to out-and-out bribery or horse trading, Ned style. There you go. And when Mm. did it fall out of use? It was still around in the 70s. You could actually find it in newspapers in the 70s. And in around that same time, in 1968, in London at Sandown Park Horse Track, just before retiring, the great Australian jockey Scobie Breezley had his last big win riding a horse called Cumshaw, which got home by a short head. And seven letters. Seven. There you go, seven letters. It might have been our old mate, Dr. Ping, who said, do you need another name? You need seven letters from the old Chinese language that gave us Farlap. Here you go. How about Cumshaw? I would not be surprised. Hmm. I've just just done a search on our good friend Trove. For anyone who loves history, Trove is the best resource. It's the National Library of Australia's online database of digitised newspapers. It's gold. Here you go. The Canberra Times, ACT, 24th of January, 1987. It's a report about the celebration of Chinese New Year in Hong Kong. It is a carefree time of red and gold, the colours of good fortune and prosperity that suddenly appear everywhere, plastering huge hoardings, framing doorways and colouring the tiny packets of cumshaw or lucky money. Ah, lucky money. That fake money that people put in shrines and burn and I guess that could be cumshaw as well. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah, nice. It was used... um this week, in 1878, also in a cheeky editorial in the Melbourne Punch, where the writer's pretty much suggesting that a judge in Ballarat, which had a, a big post-gold rush Chinese community, should adopt more Chinese customs in court. They're pretty much jokingly saying that he should introduce Cumshaw, better known in Ballarat as Kick, to, to court, and that the Cumshaw could range in value from a fowl to a diamond ring. The custom is universal in the Peking courts, and his honour, through ignorance or unwillingness to follow all the Chinese fashions, has been a severe loser by not enforcing it. Nice. It was suggested, despite what the dictionaries say, I did find a newspaper from way back uh, around this week saying that they thought Cumshaw came from the British sailors in Hong Kong pulling into port and needing a little boat to bring them in, like a sampan, and they'd yell out, we want to come ashore, we want to come ashore. And that's what the Chinese heard, and then they they just echo it and repeat it back, and that's where come ashore came from, as in to come ashore. Mm. Mm. But then how would that become a word for bribery or gratuity? Well, then I mean, it could also be that in Chinese, come ashore 
or come share is also grateful thanks. Maybe it, it's yeah. just a you know a happy coincidence there. For should us. we reintroduce come share? Start using it again in sentences. I think we should. Uh, I can imagine the look on the face of a barista if you dropped a dollar coin into their little glass into their little tip jar and said there's some cum shore for you yeah fancy a little cum shore yeah it might fall a bit flat <laughs> it might. also this week in newspapers all across australia were detailed reports and descriptions of the new scientific innovation due in australia soon the telephone no way that rings a bell indeed thank mm. you Alexander Graham. So these newspaper reports are detailing what a telephone is, what it does, kind of how it works in very rudimentary fashion, and also quite charmingly how you can actually how you should actually speak over a telephone. This article in the Sydney Mail and New South Wales Advertiser on the thirteenth of July instructs listeners to speak slowly and distinctly, accenting the last syllable in each word. A loud shouting voice is not required. An indistinct or muffled tone of speaking will give confused articular sounds and will be difficult to understand at the distant station. A conversation can be easily maintained. Speak into the sound chamber with the mouth about three or four inches distant from it. When receiving the reply, hold the chamber opposite to the ear. Singing at either end is very effective, the words and air being easily heard. So there you go. We were learning telephone etiquette a year before the first telephone service was launched in Australia and that would be in Melbourne at the South Melbourne offices of Robinson Brothers the following year 1879. Fantastic. And it took off like nobody's business. It it did a bit didn't it but that etiquette sort of stuff um, we're still learning it aren't we? I mean (laughs) absolutely. If the person who wrote that could sit on a train (laughs) now and listen to people on their mobile phones. Exactly. Mm. It'd be nice to get a little bit of a recording of some of these conversations from back in the day where they'd be emphasizing every last word of every sentence. I oh, know it was the last it was the last syllable in each word. Oh the last syllable in each word needed right. to be emphasized. Would have sounded a little bit odd. It would have. I no like doubt. the singing though. The singing's nice. That's a mm. nice touch. So by August 1880, Melbourne had a telephone exchange. By the time Ned Kelly was hanged, you might have even heard about it over the phone. That is incredible. Ring, ring. Hello, how's it going? Yeah, not bad. What's going on? Oh, have you heard? They hanged Ned Kelly. Bloody hell. Wow. And can I interest you in long-distance savings? (laughs) So by uh, 1884, there were 8,000 calls handled in in Melbourne. So that was about 20 a day, apparently. And that would have been the big spaghetti board, as they called it. Where they plugged mm. in your number, you'd call the the junction box, and they'd put you through. Yes, eight thousand is a that is that is a lot. By eighteen eighty four, yeah, you don't really think of eighteen eighty four as people making telephone calls. By eighteen ninety, Melbourne had its first coin operated public phones. Wow! Again, if you saw these in a in a film, you'd think, oh, that, that's an anachronism, wouldn't you? I thought you said anachronism. <laughs> I'm not that clever. Um, I'm going to read some newspaper reports to you is that all right do it all right here's some uh, very small news reports from july 1878 a good many are stampeding into the bear gulch country news of rich prospects reach here daily the cheyenne stage was delayed on the lower extremity of the road the coach left hat creek around 10 o'clock 
is another one. All from the same issue of the same newspaper. Mm. History of road agents. On the third page appears the first of a graphic sketch of the doings and history of road agency in the hills, in which many familiar names and incidents true to life are mentioned. I'll give you one more that may place you in the particular town. Al Swearingen is building a place near Camp Bear Butte. <laughs> Six nymphs de Terpsichore, that is dancers, that is prostitutes, will be taken out today and more will follow if the boys in blue appreciate dancing. So they are all from the Daily Deadwood Pioneer Times right. in July 1878, which does feature a nice big ad for hardware, queensware, furniture, Star and Bullock, Main Street, Deadwood, have received and will sell cheap the following best assorted stock of goods in the hills. You have just whisked us back to the frontier land, America, 1878. For those not familiar with Deadwood, the TV show, right? Exactly. So in 1878 this week, Deadwood in South Dakota was growing by leaps and bounds um, as more and more people came west, set up businesses, prospected for gold. And of course, the historical figure, Al Swearingen, who was the manager of the dance hall called The Gem, was a big man in the town. And he is obviously the main, one of the main characters in the TV program. Um, and his nemesis being Seth Bullock, who's the hardware store owner slash sheriff. These are all based on real people, and you can read their exploits sort of almost on a daily basis in the daily Deadwood Pioneer Times. And I still remember the scene. I love the scene in one of the episodes where Swedgen gets um, really into the local paper, and he's just enchanted by the process of writing something for the paper and then watching it getting printed. And he has this childlike glee at watching what he's written get put into the hot type and then printed and then come, comes pouring pouring off the uh, the press yeah and this is and this is that paper that's amazing when deadwood first came out i assumed the name was made up that surely that there wasn't a town really called deadwood back then oh absolutely yeah the reason i was interested is because i'm rewatching it now because the final telly movie that caps the series has just been released recently mm. And, it is, and I had to be careful because I don't want to get too many spoilers about who lives and dies um, because it is based on real people and events, obviously dramatised. There's one little report here from September 1878 which really does seem like a scene from the show. Its headline is, Delirium Tremens, early this morning a man started out of Swearingen's dance hall when near the door he commenced to spin around like a top, his eyes looking like balls of fire. An application of cold water after a few moments had the desired effect. The man said he had eaten nothing for two days but had drunk intoxicating liquor continually during that time, which is pretty much every single character in the show. Yeah, it could also be a description of Ned and Dan down at Stringybark Creek after a little too much of their Mangalwurzel whiskey. <laughs> That's right. That's all the time we have this week. Join us again next week when we go way back to the fourth week of July, 1969. A final thought, as Leo Tolstoy said, remember that there is only one important time, and it is now. Pass me the beard oil.